Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Uh, Two quick things before we jump into teaching. Uh, First, many of you know that every other year we take a pilgrimage to Israel and to Palestine. And uh, yeah, somebody apparently is excited for that. And uh, we're doing it again next year. The dates are April 1 through April 10. And uh, next week, my good friend Kent Dobson, who uh, I co-lead the trips with, is going to be speaking here. And we're going to do an informational meeting right after the service uh, just here in this room. So if you're curious about it or have some questions, uh, please plan to stick around and we'll try to answer all of those. It should take about 15 minutes. Uh, The second thing is I wanted to give you an update on our buildings. Some of you are like, did you just say buildings plural? And the answer is yes, because we currently have two facilities. We have this one, and then many of you know that in September of 2022, we purchased a facility at Zuni Street in Alameda. And we also bought a little bit of land that was attached to it. And when we bought it, we had gotten some initial estimates from uh, several different construction companies. And then when we purchased it, we put together some architectural renderings. And then we went back to those construction companies. And there's just, I don't know if you guys have heard about inflation, um, but the estimates came back about 40% higher than we expected. And uh, so we were in a place of going, all right, well, We still have this building, how can we use it? And that was when we were contacted and we were able to host two busloads of asylum seekers uh, at that facility uh, and we're able to help them get connected here in the United States as they awaited their trial to see if they would be able to remain here. Um, But it was really taxing because we did all of that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, by the way, who you're clapping for are the volunteers who led that initiative because that was all run by our volunteers. And uh, it was really taxing, as you can imagine, for volunteers to be staying overnight and everything else. And so the city of Denver approached us and they said, hey, we love what you're doing, but we think that we could actually use this building uh, and bring get up to 100 asylum seekers in this space because we have staff that are able to serve those who are coming. And so we were able to reach an agreement with them and they, the city of Denver has been using our building. And one of my like proudest moments was that I ran into someone from the city at one of the rec centers that was also being used. And they told me it was closed. And I said, oh yeah, you're using it for asylum seekers. And they said, yeah. And I said, I'm a part of Denver Community Church. We love what you guys are doing. And she went, we love what you guys are doing. 
um, which is pretty great. So uh, right now we are kind of, we just have hit pause and we're waiting to see uh, the city of Denver will continue to use that facility through the end of August. And we ask you to pray with us as we try to determine uh, how we can move forward without being strapped with debt because we recognize that when we're strapped with debt, we're not able to do uh, all of the ministry to which we feel called. So if you would continue to pray with us, we'll continue to keep you updated. Uh, and thank you for all of the time you continue to invest. Let's pray together and then we'll jump into teaching. God, we come together this morning recognizing that you are in our midst. And it's because of this that we gather confidently asking you to speak to us. I ask that you would open our hearts to whatever it is you wish for us to hear, disturb us, comfort us, challenge us, and encourage us. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And uh, the page number there is 724. Luke chapter 9. Luke introduces a theme that we'll begin seeing as we continue to work through his gospel about Jesus going toward Jerusalem. It's this idea that Jesus recognizes where this is all going. And Luke begins to set us up, and he does so in a way here where he kind of points to the idea that Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem is not going to be without pain and without struggle. He says this in verse 51. As the time approached... For Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Which is a reasonable response. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. Now Luke does something very clever here. He says the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus. Why? Because he's going to Jerusalem. And so he juxtaposes two groups of people, the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And he does so by talking about Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, this would be like talking about, I don't know, Washington, D.C. and Moscow during the Cold War. Two cities that represented two nations that were just, it always felt like seconds away from pushing the button and leading us into full-scale nuclear war. This is the image that Luke gives us, Samaria and Jerusalem. Bitter enemies, lots of hatred. And a very, very, very troubling history. And it wasn't new. It actually went back almost a thousand years. Now, the question maybe some of us have is, who are these Samaritans? Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you maybe heard, well, you know, there's this group of people that don't like the Jewish people very much. They kind of have like rival temples and rival priests and rival messiahs and everything else. But the history of the Samaritans is actually well documented in the Hebrew Scriptures. The people of Israel, when they left the land of Egypt and the land of slavery, they went up into the land that God had promised them. And when they did so, they did so as one nation made up of 12 tribes. 
And that one nation of 12 tribes eventually said that they wanted a king and a prophet named Samuel anointed a fellow named Saul. After Saul, we see King David, and he comes on the rise, and he's the one who actually founded the city of Jerusalem. It was at that time called Jebus, and he sacked the city, and he built his palace there. It was his son Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, later called Mount Zion. And during Solomon's reign, there was a guy named Jeroboam who rebelled against Solomon. Now, you don't rebel against kings and get away with it. So Solomon tried to have Jeroboam killed, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, and he waited there until Solomon died. And then Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. Jeroboam comes back and says to Rehoboam, listen, your father was just had heavy burdens on us with taxes. And so what we'd love is for you to lower the tax burden so that we can actually enjoy life. Rehoboam said this, you think my father was heavy in his burdens? My pinky is bigger than his waist. I'm going to make it terrible for you. And he raised taxes. And even way back then, people didn't like high taxes. And so Jeroboam narrowly avoided war with Rehoboam, but he said to 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, come with me, I'll be your king, and I'll lower taxes. And they said, sounds good. And now you have the establishment of the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And we learn that Jeroboam established a city called Shechem, which is near Mount Gerizim. Remember that name, Gerizim. And he also built two temples in the north so that people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem to go to that temple. Now fast forward about, 40, or about 80 years, and we meet a guy named King Omri, who's now king of the northern kingdom over the ten tribes. And King Omri, it's, we're told, buys the region of Samaria, the hill country of Samaria, for two talents of silver which was a great deal. I don't know how much two talents of silver is. It just says that in the Bible. Anyway, he buys the hill country of Samaria, and he builds the city of Samaria on one of those hills. This is where it all begins. You already have a divided nation. Now you have the capital city of Samaria and the capital city of Jerusalem in two different places. Omri establishes Samaria, and things are going quite well for about 135 years until the Assyrian Empire, who was the global military superpower of its time, comes through and they destroy Samaria, they destroy Shechem, and they exile the people of the northern kingdom all the way back to Assyria. Now, one of the things the Assyrians would do when they would conquer a nation is they would move new people in to resettle the area. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn this. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. To this day... They persist in their former practices. Next slide. Yep. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob. Do you see the division there? 
All of a sudden it's, well, you know who lives in Samaria now. Pagans. And you know what they do. You know who they sacrifice to. You know about their religious rituals. And it was told that the Samaritans, which are the Jewish people who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, the ones who were left behind, they intermarried with all of those people from all over the world, and they began participating in their practices. And that is the origin of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were Jewish people who lived in the northern kingdom, who were left behind by Assyria, and when the new people came in to establish the Assyrian way of life and bolster the Assyrian GDP, those Jewish people married them, and they really messed their lives up. They were half-bloods. And that rumor persisted all the way through into the time of Jesus. But here's what's fascinating. Recent archaeological research that has been done on bones, human bones that were found in this region and determined to be in Samaritan places, they've been able to take DNA from them. And you know what they found? The Samaritans are Jewish people. They're not half-bloods. They never intermarried. They actually remained faithful in the midst of all of these other people coming in from around the world. Fascinating, isn't it? Samaritans are Jewish people, and Jesus and his disciples are Jewish people. Jewish people are visiting other Jewish people in a town that's connected to this long, sordid history going back thousands of years, and they're like, well, you can't stay with us because you're not one of us, except they are. And then it gets a little bit more confusing because between that time of Assyria moving everyone else in in the time of Jesus, there was a lot of skirmishes and a lot of violence because we know a century after the northern kingdom was sacked by Assyria, the southern kingdom of Judah with the two tribes was sacked by Babylon. And eventually they're exiled to Babylon. Babylon is sacked by Persia. Some of you are like, that's a lot of sacking going on. Oh yeah, that's the ancient world. Empires rise, another one does, crushes it, and it falls. So the Persian Empire takes over, and the Persian king Cyrus says to the Jewish people, after 70 years of exile, you can go back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild your temple, you can rebuild the city, and you can rebuild the walls. This is the story that's told in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, and that's exactly what begins happening, except some Jewish people from the north called Samaritans, they come down to the south where they're building in Jerusalem and begin taunting them and teasing them, thinking, you're really going to try to rebuild this garbage heap? You're really going to try to reestablish the walls? You think that'll keep you safe? And they start kind of poking and goading and prodding those who are working to do this. Other Samaritans, who were a little bit more neighborly, came around and said, hey, let us help you rebuild the temple. And the people of the southern kingdom said, no, thank you. We're fine because you are not one of us. And so the Samaritans said, fine. And they went back to Samaria. And a couple of decades later, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is right next to Shechem, the original city of the northern kingdom. And you might wonder, well, what did their temple look like? 
It looked exactly like the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason why they looked the same is because they were reading the same Bible. They just had different interpretations of it. And the biggest disagreement in their interpretation is from Deuteronomy 12, which says this. You, this has got Moses speaking to the people, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Moses is saying when you go into the land that God has promised you, find the place that God wants to build the temple. The Jewish people said, well, we know what that place is. It's Jerusalem. And we know that because God told David his son Solomon could build the temple. The Samaritans said, no. The place where God wants to build the temple is Mount Gerizim. And they pull all sorts of different scripture to point at the fact that Joshua actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim when the people of Israel, still as one nation, came into the land of promise. And in their scripture... That verse we just read actually names Mount Gerizim. And now you have this division between Gerizim and between Mount Moriah or Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Two temples from a group of people who are blood-related, who take their evidence for where they built from the same Bible and build two temples where they're worshiping the same God. You would think at some point they'd be like, I think we're more the same than different. But that didn't happen. Because things really started to spiral. Over the centuries, the hostility and the hatred grew and grew. And we learn that in in 111 BC, John Hyrcanus, who was a military man and a priest from the Jewish people, from Jerusalem, waged war against Samaria. And he went into the northern regions of Samaria and he sacked the city and conquered the city of Shechem. He he conquered the city of Samaria and he conquered and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. Archaeologists have actually found burn layers from John Hyrcanus's war in which he burned all of the cities and they said the destruction that he raged with against the Samaritan cities was worse than any other city or any other city that he had destroyed, that he just unleashed his hatred of these people, him and his soldiers. And what's fascinating is you can find some historians who are more sympathetic to the southern kingdom, to the Jewish people in this whole war, who say, well, we realize that a lot of Samaritans, including men or women and children, were killed by Hyrcanus, but you know what? It's their fault. Because they could have said to John Hyrcanus, hey, listen, We'll, we'll go with you. Can, can you imagine someone saying still today, well, it's the Samaritans' fault because they didn't surrender and say to Hyrcanus, you're right. At that point, you're dealing with 800 years of embittered history between two people. Now, in Jesus' day, this wasn't getting any better. In his lifetime... The historian Josephus tells us that the Samaritans went up to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, not to worship with the Jewish people, but actually to sneak into the temple at midnight and throw human bones and corpses all over the temple mount. 
One Jewish scholar says that in today's world, that would be a hate crime that's comparable to putting a dead pig in a synagogue. This is what the Samaritans did in Jesus' lifetime. About 10 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven, we learned that there were Jewish pilgrims coming from the northern regions of Israel down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and Samaritans ambushed them and massacred them. And it went the other way, too. Because not many years later, there was one Jewish pilgrim who was killed by a, a couple of Samaritans. And the Jewish people, in retaliation, went to the village where that happened and they massacred the people there, including women and children. Do you get the vibe that they didn't like each other? I mean, just that quick uh, blast of history and you realize everyone has blood on their hands. Even though the stories that we hear seem to always pile it on to the Samaritans, that's just because that's the story we have in our hands. There's a whole other side to history. There's a whole other side to the story, we might say. It's just that we happen to be people who, once we hear one side of a story, go, oh, that must be true. But it's not, because they both hated each other. Now, I want you to try and imagine Two sides, two groups of people who hate each other, who read the same Bible, worship the same God, come from the same roots, but are bitterly divided over religion and politics. Could you imagine living in a world that's like that? I mean, what would that be like? <laughs> It'd be so weird, wouldn't it? Would be like 2023, exactly. I actually mentioned this to a friend of mine who was talking about my teaching, and the response was, well, hang on a second, you don't know what they're like. To which I said, yeah, I do, because I shared this with someone that you disagree with, and they said the same exact thing. You're like each other. Which people, by the way, who don't like each other don't like to hear that you're actually like each other. Just makes us all a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Some of you right now, you're just reeling thinking of like all the ways you are not like the people that are your Samaritans. But in some ways, we're a lot like them. With all of this history in the background, is it any wonder then James and John are like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down some fire? Their nicknames, by the way, are the Sons of Thunder, which sounds like a WWF tag team pair, doesn't it? And they're nicknamed Sons of Thunder because they were the ones who were like, just give us the word, man, we'll do it. Now, by the way, their attitude and their desire to do this is not without precedent because there's another story from the history books about a prophet named Elijah, and every scholar that comes to this text says this is exactly what they're basing their, their uh, actions on, is Elijah. Some manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke actually have James and John saying, should we call down fire on them like Elijah did? Because in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story about a king named Ahaziah who lived in Samaria. He fell and was injured. And he said, go and ask the prophet, Elijah. Or go and tell him to come here and heal me. And so they went to Elijah, and Elijah said, I've heard from God, and here's what you need to tell the king. He's not going to get better. He's not going to recover. He's going to die. So the men go back and tell the king in Samaria the news, and he doesn't like it. 
So he says, no, I want to talk to Elijah face to face. So he sends from Samaria a captain and 50 people to Elijah who's sitting up on a hill. And they said, hey, the king would like to speak with you. And Elijah says, no. And he calls down fire from heaven and burns all 50 men and the captain alive. Bizarre story, isn't it? You're like, this is in the Bible? Oh, yeah. And then... The king says, well, I'll send another captain and 50 more men. And they come to Elijah, and Elijah calls down more fire. So he's now killed 102 people with fire, burning them to death. The king sends another captain and 50 more men to Elijah. And this time, the captain gets down on his hands and knees and puts his face to the ground. And is like, please don't burn us as his comrades are still smoldering. And Elijah finally goes and says, you're not going to recover. Now, one of the things that I know often happens is when we read the Bible, we assume that just because a story is in there, that the Bible is somehow endorsing the story. But what's fascinating is even from ancient times, scholars and rabbis and preachers and pastors have all said, this is abhorrent and cruel behavior. Elijah was not supposed to do that. The only thing God told Elijah to do was to say to the king, you're not going to recover. You're, in fact, going to die from your injuries. Somehow Elijah was having an off day or was angry or whatever it was, and he began murdering a hundred-plus people. If you read the life of Elijah, the guy had a little bit of a temper. He was a little bit off sometimes. And it doesn't seem like Jesus actually enjoys that story either because when James and John say, should we call down fire, Jesus rebukes them. It's the strongest word one can use when it speaks of reprimanding somebody. Earlier in in Luke, Jesus is in a boat and the wind and the waves are crashing over it and the disciples are losing their minds and they wake him up and it says he rebukes the wind and the waves. Same word. In the story just before this where there's a boy who's possessed by a demon, there's a moth right here. Are we just tired of moths? Thankfully, it's dead. I know some of you are like, you're not supposed to kill them. Okay. They're of the devil. I think we should. Anyway, there's the demon-possessed boy, and he falls down and has a seizure in front of Jesus, and it says Jesus rebukes the demon. He does the same thing to James and John. He doesn't rebuke the Samaritans. He doesn't rebuke those who wouldn't give him a place to stay or a meal. He rebukes his disciples who want to punish them for not doing that. And it's interesting, Jesus just says he just goes off to another village. He doesn't stop and shake the dust off his feet like he told his disciples to do when they were going to Jewish villages. He just goes. And one of the most challenging things for me about this story isn't the heart of James and John or their desire, even the history and and all of the enmity that existed. The challenging part of this story is that Jesus was willing to go into a village of the enemy and receive food from them and have meals with them and stay in their homes and allow himself to be hosted by them. That even though they seem to really hate people like Jesus and his tribes, Jesus didn't seem to have that toward them at all. He seemed very willing to be with them. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, there's a story about Jesus meeting with a woman who's a Samaritan and having a conversation with her. 
and treating her with dignity and with honor. And when his disciples see him talking to her, they're like, oh my goodness, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Because that's just not what you were supposed to do. But this is Jesus' heart. I'll go. I'll go toward them. I'll be with them. I, I wonder, like, what are the places or who lives in the homes that you wouldn't want to go to? Maybe I should ask you this way. Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that you would love to call fire down upon? Now, I know in today's world we're, you know, we're everyday peacemakers. We don't call fire down on people. We just get on Twitter and vent our rage and outrage toward people who see the world differently than we do. Or we just sit around the dinner table with those people who are like us and we make snide remarks and offer withering criticisms and speak with a lot of cynicism about those people. And it's hard to believe you're wrong because everyone around your table is laughing and nodding and feeling your own angst with you. And it just, let's be honest, kind of feels good, doesn't it? I see this with preachers all the time. Preachers who make it seemingly like their goal just to preach against people who believe differently than them, even when they're not in the room. And they're not very charitable in the way that they do it either. And every time I come across one of those, whether they're from the right or from the left, or whether they're conservative or progressive, because they're all doing it, all I can think to myself is, listen, we know what you're against. Can you tell me what you're for? That'd be really, really refreshing. What are, what are you for? What do you stand for? I know it gets uncomfortable to talk about the enemy. I know it gets uncomfortable to talk about people who've wounded us and harmed us and done horrific things to our people. Maybe that's why some of us are sitting here trying to get out from under this whole idea. Well, you know what they did. You know what their beliefs will lead to. You know what their attitude says about the way that they view God. Or the one that I enjoy the most, they don't worship the same God we do. No, because we've all made that God into our image, haven't we? They don't read the same Bible. No, they do. They just read it a different way. You see, we have words that we can sling around and attitudes that we can put out. But here's what I know. No matter where you are this morning in your heart toward those who would be your Samaritans, if it's not agreeing to go and to stay and to dine and be hosted by them, then it's not the attitude of Jesus. Because this whole story begins with Jesus turning toward and heading toward Jerusalem. I hope this is not a spoiler alert, but when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he gets killed. And he gets killed by people who hate him. He gets killed because he's wrongly accused and all kinds of lies are spoken against him. And while he's hanging on that damned cross, he looks at the people who did it to him and says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And by the way, just before that happened, he went and he had a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave some to a tax collector who was complicit in the Roman Empire. He gave some to a zealot who hated people that were complicit in the Roman Empire. He gave it to someone who would deny him and the other who would betray him and said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 
And he did the same thing with the cup. This is the way of Jesus. One of the reasons I might be so passionate about this this morning is that I was confronted with my own bias and my own anger and my own disdain not too long ago. I got invited to this gathering and I knew that there was going to be a pastor there that I don't like. I don't know how to put it. Like, I'm not going to make it rosy. I'm not going to be like, that I disagree with or I have theological concerns about. I just don't like them. And you're like, oh, so you spent time together. No. I was just judging him from a distance. He's actually really nice, which bothered me so much. So our last night at this time together, they uh, wanted to do Eucharist, and so they came to me and said, hey, uh, you're one of the pastors here. Would you be willing to serve Eucharist? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I go up front, and they, we sang some songs, and so I'm holding the bread, and I'm holding the wine, and people are coming in. These are people that I've spent four or five days with, and so I'm looking them all in the eye, saying that, you know, their name, like Julie, body of Christ broken for you, Julie, and just going through, and I was really working hard just to be focused on the person in front of me, which is why I didn't see the pastor I don't like all of a sudden appear in front of me. And I'm holding the bread, and I'm holding the wine, and I looked at his face, and said his name, body of Christ, broken for you. Blood of Christ, shed for you. And as calm as I looked on the outside, everything inside me was like, you lousy hypocrite. You call yourself inclusive? Are you kidding me? You really think you've got this whole enemy love thing down. <laughs> now, here's where it gets worse. He was the last one to go. So he then, without even asking, takes the bread from my hand and takes the wine from my hand and with this like glowing smile and loving gaze, says, my brother, the body of Christ broken for you. And I was like, Ugh. tore it off dipped it in, threw it down. Actually, no, I was in tears. And I was in tears because I realized, like, I love Jesus. But man, how often do I fail to practice his way of life and his way of love? Because the body is for all of us. The blood is for all of us. This is why we participate in Eucharist every single week, is to remind ourselves that if you're a Jew or a Samaritan, if you're gay or you're straight, if you're black or you're white, if you're Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. The blood and the bread are for you. And so we remember this together. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He gave it to the one who would betray him, to the one who would deny him, and to all who would desert him as he suffered on that cross. And we still receive the bread today. The ones who act in unloving ways, those of us who participate in violence, the people who sow division and discord, those we love the least, 
and those we love the most. And those we would never want to be seated near while enjoying a meal. Jesus still takes, blesses, breaks, and gives to all who will come saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, those who trust me and those who will betray me, those who know me and those who will deny knowing me. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins, all sins, the ones you may be quick to judge and those you are content to ignore, the sins that you see and condemn in others but refuse to see and name in yourself. The big sins, the little sins, your secret sins, and your public sins. This is my blood, which declares that all people, every single last one of us and every single last one of them, are graced, embraced, and saved by the beauty of forgiveness. And we invite you when you're ready to come down. You can come down the center aisle or the side aisles and go back up the diagonal aisles to participate, to remember This is not the table of Denver Community Church. This is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ who invites all to come.